Thank you for joining us today. We'll be studying Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be discussing how we've been made alive in Christ and that our salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and not by any of our works. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't we get started this morning? We're going to be in Ephesians 2, but before we get started, why don't I open us in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this group and the ability to meet together to study your word in this office building. I thank you for every member of this group that gathers here each week. It's just so uplifting for us to be able to have the freedom to get together and actually study your word. And we thank you for your word. We just ask that you open our hearts and minds as we open up the Bible this morning to Ephesians and just teach us what you would have us learn. And I ask that you speak through each one of us in a way that can help us not only grow in knowledge, but also change us. Father, it doesn't do us any good, we know, for us just to come and gain knowledge. What we want to gain is not only knowledge, but application. And please teach us how to apply what we learned this morning in a way that changes our lives, changes our hearts, and helps us to become the people that you want us to be so that when other people see us, they can see you living through us. We know that it's not us, that it's the Holy Spirit living within us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, good morning. Let's, uh, let's get started. So we're over in Ephesians 2 and... We began last week our study of Ephesians where we were talking about how Paul has described that we've now as Christians been adopted as sons. It was by God's grace alone. There wasn't anything that we contributed to it and we'll see more of that in Ephesians 2 this morning. And we also talked about how the Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. So a down payment, you might say. The Holy Spirit lives inside each one of us when we become Christians. That happens to everyone as a Christian, and it happens immediately. But then allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, we're going to talk about how we make that happen as we study Ephesians. It's actually through God's grace that we were adopted. Paul's now going to go back a little bit and talk about where we were before we became Christians. We'll begin in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So let's let's unpack this a bit. It says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So uh, before we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we weren't just sick. We were dead. We were, we were full of rebellion, full of sin. That's how we were before we had God's grace. We were spiritually dead. We can see if you flip over just a couple of pages to Ephesians 4.18, Paul gives us a little, a little further view of this. He says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. So he's basically saying we were so dead and we were then separated from God. We were excluded from the life of God. And when you're in that condition, you can't even understand or respond or do God's will. You're spiritually dead. We were shut off from God. 
we couldn't even begin to do what, what pleases God without Christ. That's where we were. And you can see we formerly walked according to the course of this world. That's talking about the lifestyle of the culture. We can see that today. Satan is alive and well in our culture. Paul goes on to say that the prince in the power of the air of the spirit that is now working. So Satan is not material. Satan is spiritual. Satan is out there and he is working. And he's working in what Paul describes as the sons of disobedience. How different that is from what we studied last week about being sons of God. Verse 3, among them we too, so all of us, we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. That's how we came into the world this way. We were born with this lust of our flesh, this original sin, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So when we come into this world, we're just like everybody else. We were, as he calls it, by nature, children of wrath, children of sin, separated from God, living our life according to the prince of the power of Satan. That's how we were. It's a terrible picture, but that's our culture. Our culture is one that you basically do whatever your body or your mind want to do. You're separated from God, so you're ruled by Satan. And yet, let's now read about the tremendous grace that God has bestowed upon us, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. We keep using this word grace, and it's so important. I want to make sure we all understand that. Grace is undeserved. Grace can't be earned. Grace basically means that we get what we don't deserve. And mercy means we don't get what we do deserve. So God has just extended this through his love of us, this tremendous grace that we don't deserve because we're just, we're born totally dead in our sin and focused on our fleshly desires. And yet we see here in verse five, it says, even though we were dead in our transgressions, so again, not just sick, we were dead, spiritually dead. He made us alive with Jesus Christ. He says, it's by grace that we've been saved. We have nothing to contribute to it except for our need to have our sins forgiven and for God to give us eternal life by his grace. Verse six, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this is the promise of our inheritance that we talked about last week in chapter one. We're gonna share with Christ in his rule in the heavenly places. And we see in verse seven, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God's grace, we've seen in verse five, God's grace gives us life. And then in verse six, God is going to raise us up and seat us in the heavenly realm with Christ. And we read about that really beginning in verse six, continuing through verse 10. So let's go on. And by the way, these next couple of verses, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, I know I've encouraged you to memorize scripture. 
this is really a, an important scripture to memorize and have available. This is one that I use just about every time when I'm sharing the gospel with people. It's so important to understand this. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it, and I'll come back to that, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. This just makes it so clear. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. You can't add anything to it. And there's various, I'll just call it various religions, maybe even denominations that want to add things to this, that it's grace plus something. Really, when you look at all other religions in the world, all other religions other than Christianity, you're trying to get right with God by doing something, earning your way. If you can just live your life a little better, be a little better than the average person, then Hopefully that will be good enough that hopefully God grades on the curve and you'll have eternal life. That's essentially every religion other than Christianity where you're trying to be just good enough to get there and it's by your own works that you're going to earn your salvation. Christianity turns that all on its head and says, you know what, we'll never be good enough to earn anything. God is righteous and there's no way that we can ever be holy and righteous like God. We're dead. We're dead in our trespasses, just like it said in verse 1. There's no way we can ever get right with God on our own. And yet, by God's grace, by his love for us, he gave us this gift. He gave us his son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay our debt for our sin. And all we have to do is place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and believe. And we have eternal life. It's a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God. There's nothing we can contribute to it. In fact, uh, when you look there in verse 8, there's various commentary on this where it says that by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Some would argue salvation is the gift of God that it's talking about, and I agree with that. But I think this is actually talking about our faith that I think that's the better argument that because it says it's not by works. This isn't a, a salvation versus works thing. This is a faith versus works. And it's faith alone. We, have, we, we don't contribute to it. It's a divine gift. And I happen to believe that if it requires a human response, now all of a sudden we're earning something and we have something to boast about. So I, I happen to believe our faith is a gift as well. I know we've been given free will, and I know that we need to go and preach the gospel, share the gospel with others so that they can place their faith. But I think there's a tapping on our heart that God puts in there that then opens our mind to then receiving this gift. But we do have to receive it. We can't receive it for others, we have to receive it ourselves. So I've had, I've heard this analogy. It's like if I took my watch off and I said, here, I'm going to give you my watch. Uh, but if you don't accept it, if you don't take that gift, then you haven't received it. Again, this is a bit of a mystery, but I just don't like to go down the path of, of thinking I did anything to deserve it because clearly there's nothing I've done to earn it other than accept the gift that God has given me. 
And I'm so thankful for that. So I would ask you to think about memorizing, and certainly if you write in your Bible, those are good verses to underline to come back to. Okay, so let's go on. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is saying that actually God is responsible for our good works. He performs good works through us, through the Holy Spirit living inside of us. When we do something good, if we think we did it, we're fooling ourselves because by nature, we're sinful creatures. But when we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, we can actually live our lives in the way that it says God prepared beforehand. And he wants us to walk according to the plan that he prepared beforehand. And by do, we do that by studying the scriptures, by praying, and by trying to discern what God's will is for our life so that we can walk according to the way that God intended. We can live our lives that way. That's what walk means. Verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let's go back and unpack this a bit. There was probably some remaining conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles that uh, Paul may be responding to here. That was certainly the culture. You remember the Jews, they were chosen by God. They were the chosen nation. When we use the term Gentiles, that's everyone else other than Jews. And so he's saying that you, the, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, they were called uncircumcised by the Jewish people who were circumcised because that was part of what was done to set them apart. And Jews were very proud of their circumcision. That was a sign to show that they had been set apart as God's chosen people. And they really didn't like the Gentiles much. There was some friction. They were aliens. And some of the Jewish laws prohibited them from interacting in some ways with the Gentiles. And so there was friction between them. And so Paul is going to try to address that. And he's even telling the Gentiles, remember, before you came to Christ, this was you in verse 12. You were separated from Christ. You were certainly separated from God. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel because God had chosen the Israelites to be light to the rest of the people and to the other nations. And so if you weren't a Jew, you were excluded from Israel. You weren't part of the nation of Israel. That was number two. Number three, you were strangers to the covenant of promise. That meant the Gentiles, they didn't have any covenant relationship with God like uh, the Israelites did. They weren't part of God's chosen Israel. Number four, they had no hope. They had no hope of salvation. They had no hope like Israel. They were separated from God by their sin. And further, uh, he says, number five, they were without God. So they were godless. You could say they were like atheists. They were godless. Sure, they had some pagan gods, but they were without the true God. That's a pretty 
dire description of how Gentiles were and really how we all were before we became Christians. And so the Jews viewed Gentiles with contempt. Essentially, they viewed Gentiles as just fuel for the fires of hell, really. And so Paul wants to address this conflict. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, meaning the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, meaning Christ, is our peace, who made both groups, look at that, he made both groups, Paul's talking about both Jews and Gentiles, into one. He made both groups into one and brought about peace. He says, and Christ broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. There was a dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, but Christ broke down that wall. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, this friction, which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So he's saying he was going to make the two into one new man. He was going to take Jews and Gentiles, and he was going to create the church out of both Jews and Gentiles. When Jesus came, God changed his focus from just the Jews to both the Jews and the Gentiles. We'll talk about the millennium and future lessons in the nation of Israel, but when we're talking about the church age, which we live in right now, which is where the focus is that Paul's talking about, he's saying that Jesus tore down the barrier between Jew and Gentile and established the church. He fulfilled all the law of the commandments for all of us so that our sins are forgiven and he brought the church together the Jews and Gentiles into one and he says thus establishing peace there should be peace between Jews and Gentiles God established this it's a new standard it wasn't like the law in the old days now Christ has fulfilled that and Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law and essentially he's rendered the law inoperable for us who are Christians and want to live a life as God's people. The barrier that existed before, there were dietary laws, there were all kinds of laws that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, and he's saying that has now been fulfilled. He's broken down that barrier, and so there's a new entity created, and it's called the church. It's the church for both Jews and Gentiles, and this is an entirely new concept, that Jesus died for all, both Jews and Gentiles. We're to all be one church in Christ. If you look ahead over to chapter 3, verse 6, you can see exactly that Paul's going to get more specific, but he says, to be specific, this mystery, look up in verse 4, it says, there was a mystery of Christ. And he says, to be specific, that mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so the church is for both Jews and Gentiles to become one in the church of Christ. So let's continue on in verse 16. That in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity So this friction between Jew and Gentiles has been put to death on the cross by Jesus Christ. Verse 17, 
And he came, meaning Jesus, and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Paul's quoting from Isaiah right there, Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus would come and preach peace to those far away, meaning the other nations uh, from Israel, meaning the Gentiles, and he would bring peace to those who were far away and near the Jews in Jerusalem. He would come and preach peace to both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 18, for through him, meaning Christ, we both, meaning Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, to the Father. So that's really interesting. Look, you, you have the whole Trinity mentioned there. We have, for through him, meaning Christ, the Son of God, we have our access in one spirit, meaning the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to the Father, God the Father. So the Old Testament, only the Jews had access to God the Father, and that was through the Levitical priest. You remember they go and bring their sacrifices to the Levitical priest who would offer the sacrifices to God. After Christ, now both Jews and Gentiles have direct access with the Holy Spirit living inside of us through Christ to God the Father. That's what this is saying. So God the Father, he developed this plan of grace for our salvation through faith. The Son then carried out the plan by dying on the cross, being buried and was raised from the dead. And then the Holy Spirit is the means of our immediate access to the Father through the Son. What power that is. Let me finish out and then we'll go into our discussion and application. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, meaning all believers. So we're, we're no longer strangers, we're no longer separated from God, but we're now fellow believers, fellow citizens, and are of God's household. We're now part of the inheritance, as we read in chapter 1. Jews and Gentiles, there's been reconciliation with each other and with God to now form this church, which is the bride of Christ. Verse 20, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, so that's referring to the apostles in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Let me unpack this a bit. Turn with me over to Isaiah. Go back to the left. Isaiah is a really big chapter that you'll find after Psalms and Proverbs, after Ecclesiastes. So go over to Isaiah 28, 16. It says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying a Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone, for the foundation firmly placed, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. This is prophecy by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ came, uh, actually prophesizing that Christ would be the cornerstone. Isaiah wrote this probably in about 680 to 700 BC, and it was prophesizing about Messiah. And then let me show you, uh, go back over to the left a little bit further to Psalms 118. Uh, let's look at verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Again, another prophecy well before Jesus came to live on the earth. When you think of a cornerstone, let me explain how this works. When a foundation is laid, the first stone that goes down on the foundation, and they're saying the foundation was laid by the prophets, by the Old Testament prophets, and by the apostles. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and so it's the first stone laid down on the foundation. By the way, all the Old Testament was always pointing to the Messiah, always pointing to the coming of Christ. Christ is the foundation, the cornerstone. And when you put a cornerstone down on a foundation, it has to be perfect. All the sides have to be perfect. And the reason for that is because then the rest of the building ends up conforming to that stone. If the cornerstone one edge is off a little bit, then the rest of that side of the building is going to be off. And so if you think of this analogy of a cornerstone, think about it. Christ is the perfect stone that then the church is being built upon and fitted together and growing together, it says, as a holy temple in the Lord. And he goes on in chapter 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is living in each of us and together we form the church. We all bring different things, different gifts that God has given us to build the church but we're all being conformed to the image of Christ as the cornerstone. Isn't that beautiful and such a different view from what we had as we viewed the Old Testament temple where God made his presence known. Now we have, we didn't just have God making his presence known in the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem. We now have God living inside us as the Holy Spirit. What an incredible plan God has put together for us out of his grace. So some of the things to take away from this, certainly we can't earn our salvation. We have nothing to contribute to it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. We also saw that the Jews and Gentiles were now to be one body in Christ. Certainly different from the Old Testament. It was a mystery before. And the Holy Spirit now lives in us to help us learn to do and to want to do the works that are pleasing to God. And it is through the Holy Spirit that we do these works, not to gain our salvation, but we do it in obedience to God and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. What we'll read about when we come back next week is Paul is going to tell us what the church, us as the church, what we are now to do what that means, how different that is from the way that we lived before we had the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.